Go ahead and find Mark chapter 9 with me. Mark chapter 9. The Gospel of Mark uh, divides pretty neatly in two. In the first half of the book, chapters 1 through 8, Jesus is basically a miracle-working superhero and celebrity. Um, These chapters really portray a Messiah who has arrived in power. And so in chapter after chapter, Jesus is is healing disease, he's casting out demons, he's calming storms, he's raising the dead... He gathers a following, a a huge following. There's always crowds around Jesus in the first half of Mark. Uh, And really, the crowd is is too many uh, for Jesus' liking. And he's constantly running away from his his fans. But people are magnetically drawn to Jesus. It's an easy sell to everyone except, except the scribes. It's this. The Messiah is here. He's bringing about the kingdom of God, he's fulfilling scripture, and he's got amazing, miraculous power. The expectations are high, and they are being met. But in the second half of the book, beginning in chapter 9, the miracles really take a a serious back seat. Even on on the odd occasion when Jesus does do a miracle in the second half of Mark, he does so reluctantly, and he often issues a rebuke prior to doing the miracle. So, for example, in chapter 9 and verse 19, before he casts out, the demon, he says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And then he says, bring him to me. And so if the power of Jesus takes a back seat in the second half of the book, what takes the front seat is Jesus' weakness, especially his humiliation, which finds its ultimate expression at the cross. And so this tension that Jesus is both glorious and humiliated, both strong and powerful, but also weak and humble, this tension ties the minds of the disciples and pretzels. They say, just as soon as we've discovered this glorious Messiah, just as soon as we've seen him demonstrate his power and put our faith in him and confessed him, as, as Peter does in, uh, in chapter 8 and verse, uh, verse 29, just as soon as you make these great realizations about Jesus, he starts saying stuff like this in Mark 8 and verse 31. He began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days be raised. Jesus is all at once strong and weak, powerful and humiliated, glorious and humble. And as soon as you get to Mark chapter 9, Jesus really begins pressing that tension hard. Jesus will ascend to his throne over his kingdom, by first going to the cross. That's what he begins teaching them. Jesus will arrive at glory, but he will do so by way of humility. And what he's trying to teach his apostles in these chapters is that that is the way it works for us too. That the way of Christ is also the way of the Christian. Disciples will arrive at glory the exact same way Jesus does, by way not of glory and greatness, but by way of humility. So what I want us to do this morning is to look at three parts of Mark chapter 9, three little texts from Mark chapter 9, the first of which underlines the glory of Jesus, the second of which underlines the humiliation Jesus is uh, is going to accept, and the third underlines how the disciples must walk this same paradoxical path of glory through humility. So let's begin with the glory story in verse 2. This is uh, Mark 9 and verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. 
And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around them, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. I want to first draw your attention to a a small detail, and I want to make something of it. Mark says in verse 2 that this occurred after six days. Six days after the teachings of chapter 8, six days after the promise Jesus makes in chapter 9 and verse 1, that my kingdom and my power and glory will come. This occurred six days after that. And that's an interesting detail because prior to this, if you read Mark, Mark is typically vague about time frames. He's not very precise. He's not very concerned that you know how long after one thing, another thing happened. The beginning of chapter 8, chapter 8 and verse 1, the time marker is this, in those days, which is extremely vague. So why does Mark all of a sudden uh, concern with six days? And I think a very good answer, and one that you will hear from people who are, are sensitive readers is that this is, almost serious. this is almost certainly an echo of Mount Sinai. In Exodus 24, Moses and Israel are at Mount Sinai. God is preparing to reveal his law to Israel and to reveal himself and his glory to Moses. He calls Moses to the mountain. But before the revelation, there must be a six-day waiting period. So it goes like this in Exodus 24 and verse 16. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. Days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. God took Moses up to a high mountain to reveal his glory, but first he waited six days. After six days, he did this before that could happen. And so, before Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to another high mountain, a mountain on which his glory will be revealed to him. There are first six days that must pass first. I just think that is a, uh, I think that's an important connection. It's not the last connection we'll get to Moses and Exodus here. And what happens on this mountain is a transfiguration, which is a word, of course, we use every single day of our lives, and we all know exactly what that means. Uh, it's not a word we use. If you look it up in the dictionary, transfiguration means a complete change of form or appearance, into a more beautiful or spiritual state. And so it's a transformation of appearance into a a beautiful spiritual state. And in the case of Jesus here, it means that his human appearance is perceptibly changed. For a moment, the earthly form of Jesus is pulled back to reveal his heavenly form. So six days earlier, this was chapter 8 and verse 38, the six days prior to this, He said this, the Son of Man would one day come in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. One day the Son of Man would come in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And what I think this is, is sort of a preview of that. The Son of Man's glory, his heavenly form, is being revealed to these three apostles. And alongside the glorified Jesus are two important Old Testament figures. In fact, probably the two most important Old Testament figures, Moses and Elijah, 
Moses was the lawgiver. Moses was the leader of the Exodus. And there are many Jesus-Moses parallels in the Gospel of Mark, which we're not going to belabor. Elijah is the prophet of power and judgment. That's really what he is known for in the Old Testament. His name pops up a lot in Mark too. People had mistaken Jesus for Elijah a couple of times prior to this. and He'll come up again in chapter 9. To see these two men beside Jesus is basically to see the entire storyline of Israel before your eyes sort of representatives of all of God's history with his people, of God's deliverances, of God's speaking, of God's revelation before Israel. Each of these men spoke for God. Each of these men was a crucial prophet in the plan of God for his people. Each of these men worked great deliverances for God's people. The reaction of the three apostles is terror. In Scripture, people who have authentic encounters with God, their initial reaction is always fear and terror, never comfort. No one knows quite how, to, quite how to respond or what to say until Peter has a bright idea in verse 5 when he says, let us make three tents, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And the word he uses for tents is the same word for tabernacle. What Peter seems to envision is sort of making this a holy site, commemorating this event. Three tabernacles. A tabernacle, a temple, that's where heaven and earth intersect and God can be among his people. And so let's, let's do that. And God's response in verse 7 shows just how wrong Peter is. God comes, like he does on Sinai, in the glory cloud, and he responds. The point of the transfiguration is not to show Jesus' equality with the other prophets, not to show Jesus as one among these men, but to show Jesus' superiority to these great men. Jesus does not merely follow in the footsteps of other prophets. He is the consummation of all that God has been up to through these prophets. It has all been leading to Jesus, who is a prophet, but is much more than that. He is God's own son. And when God's son talks, God reminds them, you listen and you obey. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Again, an echo echo of what uh, God had said to Moses. He had said this to Moses in Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among you, Moses says to Israel, from your brothers. And then the crucial words about this great prophet. You shall listen to him. And then in verse 8, as if to drive home the superiority of Jesus to the prophets, in verse 8, Moses and Elijah vanish. And the three apostles are left staring at the one who deserves their ultimate allegiance, only Jesus. Jesus alone is the bearer of God's new revelation. So you know what this story is about? You know what this is underlining to these apostles and to us? This is a story about the glory Jesus possesses. That for a brief moment, these three are able to see Jesus in his exalted heavenly form, the form he is in today. Now, we know in in Jesus' earthly life, he looked just like a normal guy. There was no halo around Jesus as he walked around Galilee or Jerusalem. There was no aura, special aura like you'll sometimes see in the paintings of him. Isaiah 53 said the Messiah would have no special form or majesty that we would look on him and be awed by him and think he is so beautiful and wonderful looking. He wasn't like that in his earthly life, except at this moment, when he does have the majesty and beauty and glory. So this story declares a few crucial things about Jesus. Number one, he is the most authoritative and glorious prophet there is. As great as Moses and Elijah were, they were not the beloved son of God. 
And Peter's suggestion of, of the three tenths treats Jesus as a prophet among prophets. And God says that's not what he is. He is more than a prophet. He is the son. And if he is the son, then we treat him like God's son. We listen to him. This, this, also, this revelation also says that Jesus is worth following to the ends of the earth by virtue of his glory. Mark really emphasizes all these events are happening for the benefit of Peter, James, and John. In verse 2, Jesus specifically brings these three with them. He is transfigured before them. Verse 4, they are appeared to them. In verse 7, God speaks directly to them. I think the point is to strengthen the commitment and faith of these men in order to prepare them for the suffering they'll experience. That if you're going to bear your cross and lose your life for Jesus' sake, you have to be really convinced Jesus is worth all of that. And this is what Jesus is saying to them. He is saying, when you see my true glory, you will see that I am worth it. This may be the highest and most glorious Jesus ever looks in the Gospels. The highest and most glorious form he ever takes. It's a wonderful scene. Less well known, however, is the conversation that happens on the way down from the mountain. And so that brings us to the second, to the second part of our sermon. We think about the humiliation Jesus accepts. So this, is, this is verse 9. They're up on the mountain... Transfiguration is over. Moses and Elijah are gone. The glory cloud dissipates and they walk down. Verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. Now, Jesus is always telling people to to keep quiet the miraculous things they see in the Gospel of Mark. And I think the reason is usually because when, when the masses get hold of this little piece of Jesus, when they, when they just hear that some great miracle-working prophet is there, they will want to run with it, they will want to use him and twist Jesus and, and try to enlist him into their, into their dreams of revolution or whatever. Um, you can imagine many Jews transplanting all of their political gene, dreams onto a powerful miracle-working prophet like Jesus, want to use them as a tool instead of listening to him and what he actually wants them to do. In this case, it seems, the disciples won't be in a position to even understand the significance of this until after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so he says, you're going to be quiet about this until that. And they're confused. They don't understand what's this resurrection business. And then they express some of their confusion in verse 11 when they ask, why did the scribes say Elijah must come first? It's a question that springs from Malachi 3, where a prophet who was often identified with Elijah will come first, and make way, make straight the way of the Lord and prepare the way for the Messiah. And so the scribes were teaching Elijah would come. And they, their question is, okay, you're the Messiah, Jesus, and you're going to do all this Messiah stuff, so what about Elijah? Don't those scriptures have to be fulfilled first? It's easy, by the way, to, to think about why Elijah might have been on their mind. They just saw the guy. And the disciples aren't wrong, and the scribes weren't wrong. Elijah does come first. That's what he says in verse 12. Elijah does come first to restore all things. And then after that, he says in verse 12, the Son of Man comes, and he comes to suffer, and he comes to die. Well, Jesus says in verse 13, Elijah has come. The Elijah has come in the New Testament. His name is John the Baptist. And they did to him, verse 13, whatever they pleased. 
It's a reference to the execution of John the Baptist, whatever Herod and his, and his family pleased. Now what's left unsaid in verse 13 is that this, since Elijah has come, and since Elijah has, has gone, now must the Son of Man come. And what did Jesus say the Son of Man is here to do in verse 12? To do his work of suffering, to do his work of dying in fulfillment of Scripture. So on the mountain, here is Jesus in his glory. Jesus is high, literally. But then he goes down. He goes down from the mountain, literally. He goes down metaphorically. On the way down from the mountain, he begins foretelling his humiliation, his being brought low. Verse 14 contains that exorcism story we referenced a minute ago when Jesus hesitantly works a miracle. But we resume in verse 30 when Jesus picks up this theme to the apostles. This is verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And so now Jesus is traveling through his home region of Galilee, but he has no interest in a homecoming party there. He is on a mission to teach his disciples what he's really here to do. And he says, I'm here to do three things. Number one, be delivered into the hands of men. Number two, be killed by those men. And then number three, after I am killed, after three days, rise. And as in verse 10, the disciples don't understand any of this, and they're afraid to even ask anymore. I'm, I think they might be afraid of what the answer might be to pursue this any further. What do you mean be killed? Now, it's really easy for us to sort of mock the ignorance, the, the slowness of, of the apostles to understand all of this. And that's because we already have the whole story and have been talking about it for decades. But put yourself in the position of these disciples. You've just come to confess Jesus is the Christ after witnessing these great powerful miracles. He's been preaching a coming kingdom. You believe with every fiber of your being, this man has come to deliver Israel with the second exodus. And by the way, that's exactly what he is there to do. Now what that looks like in practice might be different, but that's what he is here to do. And then as soon as you've come to terms with all of this, and as soon as you let yourself get excited about all of this, this one starts talking about being powerless and crucified and suffering. And there are no categories to put this sort of thing in for them. They're saying to themselves, think of Peter, James, and John who've seen the transfiguration. You're supposed to be the new and greater Moses. That's what I've just gotten, I think, from that story. But let's think about Moses. If the original Moses was killed before he was able to deliver Israel, he doesn't deliver Israel, does he? That's sort of a loser type thing. That's like a not accomplish the mission type thing. You're supposed to be the new and better Elijah. Is that what I understand? Well, Elijah was the prophet of great judgment and power. Elijah was the one calling fire down from heaven on the enemies of God. He wasn't the one being rained down on and being killed. He was the one dispensing the judgment, not the one absorbing the judgment. They don't know what to do with all of this. They're trying to wrap their mind around this new kingdom where the king is more glorious and powerful than any prophet. And just as soon as you realize that, he starts talking about dying. Jesus has glory. And then he foretells his humiliation. And I believe all of this, in, in, in Mark's narrative, all of this is meant to lead us to this text in, to, in verse 33, which comes next. 
where we find out how this relates to the disciples, how this plays out in the lives of, of God's people. So let's think about the glory that the disciples seek in the face of all of this glory that Jesus has shown. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what, are you discussing? what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so they get to Capernaum, they get to the house where they're staying. Jesus asks, hey guys, what were you talking about? And do you think he knew the answer to that question? I'm pretty sure he did. And the disciples don't want to answer the question because they're ashamed, but Mark rats them out for us. They had argued with one another, verse 34, about who was the greatest. And of course, what this argument belies is a total lack of understanding of what it is Jesus has been getting at here. A total deafness to the message of everything that's just happened. And so verse 35 again, he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. In Jesus' kingdom, the way to be greatest is to put yourself last. The way to be somebody is to make yourself a, a servant of somebody else. The way to be glorified is not self-glorification, but humility. The way to be big in Jesus' kingdom isn't to puff yourself up, it's to make yourself small. And then he takes an illustration from life, really emphasizing that small image. He sets a young child before them, and this child is representative of someone with no pretensions to greatness. A child is small in stature, but even more than that, a, a child is small in status in that day and time. I think this is hard to get our minds around. We, we really uh, we value children a great bit in our culture, and I think that's, that's a good thing. And In that day and time, really, they don't at all. There's an illustration of this in Aramaic, the Hebrew dialect that all the Jews spoke in the region. In Aramaic, they have one word, for servant, and use that same word for child. The word for servant and the word for child is one and the same. That is the status of a child in that day and time. And so he gets the smallest person, literally, but the smallest person socially, and he brings that child before them. And then he says this in verse 37, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but he who sent me. That word he uses, receive, is the same word he uses in chapter 6, when he talks about hospitality, that when you go out preaching and someone receives you into their home, that's, that's the word. Jesus' point is, citizens of his kingdom do not just receive the bigwigs and receive the power brokers and receive the people of higher status who can enhance your status. They receive people who can do nothing for them. They receive people who can't do any favor in return, for whom there will be no reciprocity, who have no favors to dispense, who offer no boost in your social status, and in fact, may even drag down your social status. To receive a child is to be hospitable towards someone who can do nothing in return. The service you do for them is purely for the sake of service. It's true servanthood without any other motive. And Jesus says when you do that, 
when you embody that genuine and humble service toward others, expecting nothing in return, doing good for those who can do nothing in return, when you do that, you're not just receiving them, you're receiving me. And when you receive me, you're not just receiving me, you're receiving the one who sent me. What he's showing them is, is the disciples were thinking sort of like opportunistic politicians who will do things that will raise their prospects for success and advancement. But a citizen of Jesus' kingdom doesn't think like that. They think like a servant who does thankless things for which there are no great rewards. What he's trying to drive home to them is, guys, don't you see, this is what I'm here to do. What in the world does Jesus get out of the cross? What social advancement does he receive from that act? What perk, what benefit, what reciprocity is there for that? What other motive does he have except selfless service that does not care about anything about himself except the good that act accomplishes for us? There can be no motive for that act but love and service. What he's saying to them is, guys, a servant is not greater than his master, is he? Mark 9 is immersing us in the tension of Jesus' mission and Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is all at once strong and weak, powerful and humiliated, glorious and humble. Except it's even stranger than that. He's not just both of those things. Not just that Jesus is both glorious and humble, it is that he will attain his greatest glory through being humble. It's not that he balances the two. It's that he reaches this one thing, glory, through a door that looks like the exact opposite of that thing, humility. Not just that Jesus is both king and servant. It's that he ascends to his kingly throne by way of being tortured on a cross. I want want you to turn with me to one more passage and then we'll be done. This is Philippians chapter 2. I think Philippians chapter 2 is basically a commentary on these sorts of stories in the Gospels. This is Philippians 2 and verse 5. In Philippians 2 and verse 5, Paul has thought deeply about this tension of Jesus' glory and Jesus' humility. Philippians 2 and verse 5. Philippians 2 and verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, one of the most constant things Jesus says in the Gospels is whoever humbles himself will be exalted and the one who exalts himself will be humbled. It's totally counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense on its face. It only makes sense, we think, that the one who exalts himself is the one who will be exalted. That's how you get exalted. You exalt yourself. And yet Jesus not only states the opposite, the one who humbles himself to be exalted, he vindicates that paradox in his life. Jesus is the one who humbles himself only to be exalted by God. Jesus is the one who lets his name be drugged through the mud only for that name to be given above all other names. Jesus is the one voluntarily humiliated only to be worshipped and praised forever. Paul says at the cross, 
the God who made the world, the God who actually is entitled to self-aggrandize, entitled to assert himself, entitled to take honor and status, that God chooses instead the place of shame and honor and suffering and death. And the happy irony of doing that was that he ended up with the exact opposite, the one who humbled himself the great, to the greatest distance from heaven to earth to under the earth, the one who humbled himself the greatest is the one who exalt, is exalted the greatest status imaginable. And what Jesus and Mark and Paul are all trying to say to us is that the way of Christ must be the way of the Christian. We must all become suffering servants who place your good above my comfort. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2.5. Jesus will ascend to his throne over his kingdom by first going to the cross. Jesus will arrive at glory by way of humility. And what he's trying to teach his apostles is that is the way it works for you too. Disciples arrive at glory the same way Jesus does, by way of humility. And so all of it is meant to ask us, to get us to ask ourselves, what is my life about? Is it about getting glory by self-glorification? Is it about gratification by way of self-gratification? Is it about being blessed by blessing myself? Because that's the, wor- the world's way of getting glory. But the Jesus way of getting glory is self-humbling. The Jesus way of gratification is gratification by serving others. The Jesus way of being blessed is trying to be a blessing to someone else. Jesus carries his cross on the way to glory. And what he says to his disciples is, that's how you'll get to glory also. Carry your cross. Love me above all else, even above your own life. Love your neighbor, love your brother more than you love yourself. Do that, be a servant, and you will have glory. And so maybe there's someone here that realizes you have not been living the Jesus way, the glory by way of humility. You've been living the glory by way of self-glorification. Jesus says that way leads to humiliation. You've got to live the paradoxical way to be a servant. If there's someone who needs to repent, to repent of your selfishness, to repent of your self-glorification, we offer the opportunity right now as we stand and sing.